I want a podcast. And welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today, the one and only Mark Metcalf. Mark portrayed probably one of the greatest comedic villains in movie history, the one and only Douglas C. Niedermeyer in Animal House. Mark talks about just the legacy of the movie, getting the role, and his experience filming it. He also portrayed the character in a couple Twisted Sister videos. Mark talks about how he got hooked up with the one and only Dee Snyder. Obviously, the maestro from Seinfeld. We talk about some of his other roles. And he tells me which co-star he got drunk during filming of one of his movies. Mark, such a nice guy and really a fascinating person. I learned so much about Mark in this interview, and I hope you guys do as well. And don't forget, you're all worthless in a week. And helping me relive my youth today is Mark Metcalf. Mark, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, so just you know, update the listeners on what you're doing these days. What am I doing these days? Oh, well, uh, uh, I'm going to college at the Ohio State University, uh, taking some classes, and I... Oh boy, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't know. I'm working on a, uh, I'm working on a, a book about my brother. I'm working on a book about global jihad. I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm rehearsing for a one, one time only, one night only presentation of a play called Love Letters by Pete Gurney, uh, with a friend of mine. I'm, taking a dance class, a modern dance class. I'm uh, looking forward to spring. Uh, I'm taking care of my dog. I don't know. I'm, I'm doing a lot of things. I, I, I don't know. I'm very busy. You're, you're going to uh, the Ohio State University now. Uh, when you first went for undergrad work, didn't you go to Michigan? I went to the University of Michigan to do undergraduate. I did a little graduate work at uh, um Ypsilanti, Eastern Michigan University, also did graduate work. I've been to I go to college a lot. Whenever I have free time, and if I'm near a college, I try to go take classes. Now I'm old enough so that I can go for free, and uh, I still take all the tests and take all and write all the papers and everything like that. I just uh, being on the campus or near the campus of a of a of a good university is really uh, a treasure and. Uh, and when you get to be a little bit older, they let you go for free. And I'm not working on a degree or anything like that. I just, uh, being close to that much knowledge is, it's hard to sort of not lean into it and try to take as much of it with you as you can. So I'm right. taking a class in, in Russian history and I'm taking a class in Shakespeare and autism. Hmm. Oh, wow. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. My, my son's in uh, high school right now, a freshman, and now he's just starting to read Romeo and Juliet like most high school freshmen do. Ah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. so when you first went to University of Michigan, I doubt that acting was your original plan. What was your original plan? I went to college as an engineer. My father was an engineer, and I thought that... Uh, I was good in math and science and uh, had been raised around it. My father designed the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. He worked, he did all the tunnel work on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel that goes across the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. So I'd been all through high school, I'd taken trips with him. 
down there to see that and uh, so I was fascinated by it I still think engineering is great but uh, when I got to college uh, my sophomore year when I went back in my sophomore year I my roommate said come audition for these plays at the in the theater department they're doing the three parts of Henry the sixth Shakespeare's Henry the sixth and uh, the girls are really friendly in the mm-hmm. theater department so come audition so I did, and I was cast in, I think, 15 different parts. I managed to work out 13 different costume changes and makeup changes. And, uh, I mean, most of the parts, some of the parts had no lines at all. Most of them had one line. I think I had maybe one complete scene. But it was a real trial by fire. We did all three parts. On, a couple of days, we did all three parts on the same day. And then uh, uh, most of the times we'd do part one, and then the next night we'd do part two. And it was a, a real introduction, and I just I've never been able to get away from it since. So, yeah. So when great you great people in the theater department, right? So when you decided to kind of go that route, what were your parents' like uh, reactions? Your father being an engineer, what what were their reactions to your change? They thought. I would come to my senses before I graduated. <laughs> they hoped I would. They thought, well, all right, this is good. And then after my sophomore year, actually after my freshman year, I just, uh, I never went home again right. <laughs> until I graduated. I didn't go back. I, uh, I was busy and it was not as interesting a place to be. So I, I stayed in Ann Arbor over Christmas break and, uh, worked in the scene shop or worked in the costume shop or just hung out and it was the late 60s so there was plenty of uh there were plenty of distractions uh everywhere and uh i let myself be distracted and just uh and didn't get home i i had sent him a postcard once in a while right but uh they uh and i i'm sure they they missed me and i'm i expressed my i've my apologies and, and was uh, shamefacedly apologized later on after I realized, you know, that I'd sort of left them with a big hole in the family. Uh, but I sort of, I sort of ran away from home and joined the circus <laughs> when I met theater. Yeah. So now, you know, being in the Midwest, University of Michigan, you could go either way. You could go to New York to obviously Broadway in the theater or you go the West Coast to TV and film. What one did you originally decide to do? Well, when I graduated, which I did finally do, I uh, put my diploma in an envelope and sent it to my mother and my father, and I said, here, this is for you. And it was 1968, I think it was 1968, and... uh, you may not remember, and some people will remember that it, uh, the draft was still on. There was no lottery. There right. was a draft. The Vietnam War was still on. It was a, uh, a war that I didn't want to participate in at all, and so I disappeared. I took off into the uh, into into went to California to not to act, but just to. Uh, to avoid the draft and went to Haight-Ashbury first and then lived up and down the coast of California for about eight months and then went to Oregon when winter came on. I went to Oregon because there were jobs in Oregon on Mount Hood and I lived on Mount Hood 
for a while, uh, for yeah, for about another eight months through the winter and into the summer. Uh, ran the rental the rental shop and the ski repair shop at on Mount at Timberline Lodge up there, and uh, basically just tried to avoid receiving the letter, the invitation from the uh, selective service or whatever they call themselves to come and fight in their war to go to the the physical and by the time I finally went to the physical by the time I by the time I finally got to the letter it's a long complicated story but anyway I uh, I didn't go I I had no notion of the theater as a profession uh, so I didn't uh, I didn't I just I disappeared into the into the woods into the mountains of Oregon into the into the into the crowds of the coast of California and into the and then into the mountains of Oregon and uh, when they finally caught up with me I went back but they by that time they didn't want me any more than I wanted them so I then went back to the University of Michigan on my way back to Oregon I, I stopped in the University of Michigan uh, and uh, my Jeep broke down and uh, I had to stay in order to make enough money to get it fixed and I started doing plays again and once again got captured by the uh, circus. I joined the circus again <laughs> and, uh, and went back into the theater and, and then got a job from there at, the, at uh, Milwaukee Rep and did a season at Milwaukee Rep. And after that, most of the people that I, uh, I'm eventually going to answer your question. Oh, no, it's, yeah, take your time. It's, just, it's, it's a long <laughs> So it's, a, it's a, a life story is a long story. Of course. Uh, went to Milwaukee Rep. Most of the ca- of the cast of that first season, of that season that I did at the Milwaukee Rep, uh, was out of NYU. And when the season was over, they were heading back to New York. And so I went to New York, uh, found an apartment. One of them helped me find an apartment on St. Mark's Place. I moved to New York and. Uh, and started auditioning for plays, and uh, was, I was still, it was still a lot of fun in those days. <laughs> right. And New York was a lot of fun, and uh, and the theater was, was the most fun you could have with your clothes on, <laughs> uh, that I could, uh, that I had been able to find. And uh, so I, I, I went to New York and did plays. Right. So what were some of the roles that you were getting? Oh boy. Uh, let's see, the first, I think the very first part that I had was a leader of the chorus in a production of, uh, Oedipus Rex that we did on the steps of the low library at Columbia. Hmm. So I'd get on the subway every day and travel up to the steps of the low library uh, from St. Mark's place all the way up to Columbia went what is it, 119th, 125th street on the uh, IRT and get off and we'd rehearse on the steps of the low library or in a room there and then we uh, an off off Broadway production for which I got no money I wore Catherine the uh, that sort of high shoes that the chorus wears and uh, and uh, we performed uh, uh, Oedipus Rex for you know I don't know four or five people however <laughs> many people were there right we did it every night for uh, every every Thursday Friday Saturday and I guess we'd do one on Sunday. Uh, I don't know if we did, I don't know how many times we did it, but we did that there. And then I got cast on a road show of doing um, 
Glass Menagerie and two Chekhov 1X in high schools across the East Coast, all the Eastern Seaboard and the Midwest. We went as far west as, I think, Des Moines, Iowa, maybe, or mm-hmm. Omaha, Nebraska. I think we went hit both those cities, playing mostly Catholic schools with the, the girls sitting on the left side of the auditorium and the boys sitting on the right side of the auditorium. And uh, I played the gentleman caller in Glass Menagerie with a woman whose name I can't remember, wonderful woman. She was a wonderful Laura. And uh, uh, we played uh, uh, in those high schools with the girls on the left side and the boys on the right side. When you play that gentleman caller scene, everybody feels that these two are going to get together at some point, and it's tremendous anticipation in the audience. And when you finally kiss, you don't know how long it's going to take for them to calm down. So, uh, uh, which was a great, I mean, it was a great experience to, uh, to try to live through, through that and to try to hold the audience through all of that, try to give them that, uh, that sense of possibility that Laura has in that play and the sense of optimism and arrogance that, uh, Jim has in, uh, Jim Connor, uh, Connor has in that, uh, in that scene. It's a beautiful scene. It's like walking up a mountain into thinner and thinner air. Uh, and that, and then that, and I don't know, I said, oh, and then I got cast after I'd been there for about a year and done both of those. I think I've worked pretty regularly, regularly. And, uh, and then I got, a, a Lewis Chris asked me to do Tooth of Crime, a, a play by Sam Shepard, it had not had an American premiere. They'd done it, I believe they'd done I was told they'd done it in Vancouver, Washington, uh, Vancouver, BC, uh, but they'd not done an American premiere, so I was cast in the American premiere opposite Frank Langella at McCarter Theater in Princeton with some talk of it coming to New York when I was cast, uh, which mattered neither here nor there to me. Princeton, I'd been to Princeton, uh, did seen it. I was doing a nice town to work in. I did. Uh, they cast me in Tooth of Crime playing Crow opposite Frank Langella. And then I did The Tempest down there, too. I played Ferdinand in The Tempest with uh, Nicholas. I can't remember. Boy, see, you get a little older and you can't remember some of these people's names. Um, anyway, I did the Tooth of Crime and then we did Tempest. And we didn't bring it to New York. It got great reviews and was quite celebrated, but uh, Shepard had sold the New York rights to Richard Schechner and the, uh, what was that theater that he had in New York? The, uh, again, I can't remember, but Schechner, and, and we were willing to full work there for a little while. Uh, anyway, they did another production of it, but uh, yeah, those are the earliest things, and then by that time, that, that production of Tooth of Crime, because it was so celebrated, got me, uh, I got an agent, which you kind of had to have in New York, and I got a manager too, a wonderful guy named Bill Tresh was my manager, yeah, so, you know, I I just, I worked all the time, I still really, I wasn't, in all honesty, I wasn't thinking of this as a career, and in a lot of ways, I'm very grateful, because in New York, in those days, people just sort of did the work. They weren't talking about careers. They weren't talking about what gown, million-dollar gown somebody might wear at the Academy Awards or, you know, know, P. 
People magazine barely, if it did exist at all in the 70s, thank goodness there wasn't. The cult of celebrity around show business was not quite as uh, well-defined as it has been, as it has come to be. And uh, people just did the work. <laughs> you did the work and you went to the bar afterwards and you talked about right. the work. Yeah. And you, you just, was, yeah, I'm sorry. Great. I studied with, you know, I studied with everybody there was to study with and uh, that I could find, that I had time with. Whenever I, whenever I didn't, uh, wasn't doing a play, I would go to class. And he went to class when I was doing plays. Mm-hmm. Did a, took voice classes, took movement classes, just studied, just worked. Right. The work was great. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I said no to television and to movies for the first five years that I was there in New York, I think. I think five years, yeah. I don't think I did anything. The first thing I did was a, a sh- in film was a short film uh, called The Garden Party by a, based on a short story by Catherine Mansfield that uh, had quite a good cast. Beatrice Strait was in it. Uh, Jessica Harper was in it, a guy named Jack Shoulder directed it, a guy named Paul Gurian who went on to produce quite a bit, uh, produced it. Uh, it was a good good story, good script, uh, nice cast. And I did that only because of the story and the cast, not because it was a movie or something. Movies mm-hmm. and television seemed, uh, they weren't the theater. <laughs> the theater was, uh, was where it was at. It was good. I mean, the theater was where the, the real work was done, so. Right. And then, like, your first movie, I guess, worked with a pretty big cast, you know, a bunch of Oscar winners, Julia, you know, so Jane Fonda, Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah, I mean, that, was, that was the first film that I got cast in. Uh, I had, was doing, or had done a play, I guess I, no, I guess I was doing a play called Streamers in New York at Lincoln Center, directed by Mike Nichols with, uh, Again, a good cast, Al Gulf Sweet, uh, Kenneth McMillan, both of whom were dead, Peter Evans, who also died, uh, a great fellow named Dorian Harewood, directed by Mike Nichols. I was doing this play at Lincoln Center. It was a huge, huge hit. Everybody came to see it. Uh, and then they asked me to do uh, a, a small scene, one scene part in the movie called Julia. We asked with Jane Fonda, Vanessa Redgrave, Jason Robards directed by Fred Zinneman, and uh, I didn't have to audition for it. I just went to meet Fred Zinneman at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel, and we had a conversation, and uh, he asked me to do the part, and I left the play and went to England to do the part, and it was all, it was all, it was great. I mean, it was hard to turn down those people. Right. And that, and that script, it's based on a Lillian Hellman uh, story, a memoir called Pentimento, about uh, her, the, the book is called Pentimento, it's a one story and it's about, called Julia, and it's about her friend Julia who moved money uh, and uh, in and out of uh, Nazi Germany trying to save Jews in Germany, in Nazi Germany during the war, and Hellman got tied up in it. And it's a wonderful story, may or may not, given Lillian and Hellman, be apocryphal, but Julia was certainly real, and, and it was a good story, and it was a chance to go to England and I was in England for six weeks. I worked for three days. I was <laughs> there and got paid for six weeks. Traveled all over in England, and uh, it was a great time. That's great. I got seduced away by the 
by the craft service table of the movies. Right. <laughs> so then you have Julia on one end, and then your next movie role, obviously, was Animal House on the way other end, um, playing, obviously, legendary, you know, Douglas Niedermeyer. How, um, how did that role come about? Well, I auditioned for it. I'd come back to New York after Julia uh, and hung out. I was hanging out with two good friends of mine, a woman named Amy Robinson and a fellow named Griffin Dunn. I was hanging out with them and just sort of hanging out in New York, enjoying spending the money I'd made and and accumulated on uh, Julia. And, uh, oh, I guess I went and did, did I do that first? Yes, yes, they asked me to do the Canadian premiere of Streamers, the play I'd done in New York, so I went up and and did that in Toronto and uh, came back and and, and I was asked to go in and audition for this part of Niedermeyer in this comedy called Animal House, meet the director and audition. And uh, the story is actually kind of, I've told it a million times, but uh, I was asked to come in and audition for the part of Otter, the part that Tim Matheson plays and I went in to meet with John Landis at the Universal offices on 5th Avenue I think it was and uh, as soon as I entered the room Landis looked at me and said do you know how to ride and I said of course I know how to ride I was practically born on a horse my (laughs) mother's water broke when I was uh, she was out on a trail ride on a ranch in Montana uh, she slid off the horse and my father delivered me right there in the shade of the horse. He delivered calves. Why not deliver me? And when I, once it was all done, they wiped their hands off in the law, tall grass, and got me back on my mother back on the horse, and me back on the horse, and rode back into town, into the ranch. And Landis looked at me after this rather long and, and elaborate story, uh, and said, "Yeah, right." <laughs> and so I told him five more lies about how I knew how to ride, and uh, the next day he called me and. Uh, said he wanted me to do the part. And my first statement was, great, thanks a lot. Can you see if you can get Universal to give me some money so I can learn how to ride? <laughs> so I took uh, took lessons with a great little German woman at Claremont Stables in uh, uh, in Central Park in New York. I'd ridden before. I'd ridden horses, had a lot, some experience with horses, but I, I had never been to Montana. Right. And, uh, so they, they film. They film so I lied. You that's lied. The secret to success in the movies is to lie. Right. As long as you're able to back it up, right? Eventually. <laughs> well, you don't even have to back it up. Look like what we've got for president now. You don't have oh. to back it up for that. Just lie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. Uh, so you they become fil- anything in America if you yeah, lie well. The land of opportunity, right? <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they they film the movie in Oregon and. They yep. yeah, so the cast a bunch of you know relatively unknowns. I think the biggest movie stars were like Donald Sutherland and like John Vernon, right? At that point. Yeah, and I'm not sure that John Vernon was necessarily a movie star. Right. He'd done a lot of movies. Yeah. He had a lot of movies and done it was a great actor. Universal wanted, I think, Landis says Universal wanted Jack Webb to do the part, but Jack Webb. Okay. Got, got frightened by John Landis because he was kind of crazy right. and uh, Landis wanted John Vernon and, and he got Donald Sutherland because in the Universal insisted that there be some movie star in the movie or they wouldn't they wouldn't send the money 
Right. And uh, they, we did we did it on very very little money. Did it away from Hollywood mostly because, uh, well, for a lot of different reasons. Because it, John wanted Landis wanted to be away from the guys in suits as far away as he could. He wanted to control the set himself as much as he could, and uh, wanted an environment where actors could work uh, unhindered by by going home to their families and. Uh, and, and Sutherland was doing uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers in San Francisco, and John called him and begged him to come and do uh, just two days. He right. two, shot two days, I think a Friday and a Saturday. And everybody's probably heard this story, but uh, they offered him cash money or a percentage of the picture and a whole lot less of cash money. And he said, oh, I'll take the cash. Oh. <laughs> and if he'd, if he'd taken the percentage of like a quarter of a percent or something like that, he would have made $8 million by this time. Somebody did the math once upon a time or something like that. And uh, instead he took you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, whatever he made for the two days work. Wow. But, uh, it, but it was, you know, I got to play poker with him. Right. And it was fun to meet him and play poker with him. And he took all my money, a much better <laughs> poker player than I was. Right. And, uh, yeah, and Landis always laughs and says the two highest paid creatures in the movie were Donald Sutherland and my horse. <laughs> my horse was paid more than I was paid, so. Right, but then, you know, obviously the horse had a memorable death scene, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes, although they, everyone, all the kids in the audience should be aware that's not the horse lying on its back in the office with its legs up in the air. We didn't actually kill the horse. Right, no horses were injured, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when you're filming the movie, they separate the two frats, right, uh, the Deltas and the and the um, Omegas. Um, so you were stuck, I wouldn't say stuck, but with Kevin Bacon and probably James Dalton, while everyone else kind of ha had, I guess, the fun. Was that basically to get into character for you guys? Well... Yes, yes. John, John Landis, again, uh, very smartly brought the Delta House, uh, John Belushi, Jamie Widows, Tim Matheson, the main the main fraternity house. Up, up. He brought them in about five or six days early, a week early or something like that, ostensibly to rehearse, to do some improv together, to work together, to bond, to form a bond that would be uh, the backbone of the movie, because what he recognized, which is why he didn't want any movie stars, is he, he understood that the f movie would would work or not work uh, based on the ensemble, on the on the way the actors work together, rather than on any any egos being front and center. Uh, so yes, he brought the Delta House up early and got them bonded and then brought myself in and Jimmy uh, Doughton in and I think Kevin came a little later and the two girls, Mandy, uh, uh, Mary Louise Weller and uh, Martha Smith brought them, us out about five days later and the, the funny story again, I've told it a million times, uh, this was just last year was the 40th anniversary right. so I found myself telling this story a lot. <laughs> many, many, many times. But uh, I got off the plane. I rode out there with Karen Allen. She came later, too, because she wasn't really part of the Deltas. Went to the production office. Uh, they give you your, your... The first thing you do as an actor on a movie, I've learned this early on, uh, is get your per diem just in case they change their mind. That right. means you've got some kites so you can get a bus out of town uh, or go to the bar. Hmm. 
And I got my per diem, and the production manager, Peter McGregor Scott, see, I can remember some names, right. <laughs> um, said, John is in the coffee shop across the parking lot at the Roadway Inn. He wants to see you right away. Leave your bags here. Go over there and see him. So I walked across the parking lot with my, my per diem tucked neatly into my pocket and looking forward to seeing John because I'd quite like John. The two times I'd met him, the one time when I met him at first and then the one time when I had went back and had to audition for the, the suits at Universal. And uh, I walked into the, this crowded parking lot or crowded uh, coffee shop and saw John in a big booth with a bunch of guys on the other side of the, park, of the coffee shop. And I recognized McGill because I knew him from bars in New York. Uh, he was a good friend. And Peter... Riegert I had seen and met a few times in New York because he was a New York actor. And Landis waved me over, come on over, come on over. So I walk across the parking lot of the coffee shop and uh, I get about 10 feet from the table and Landis points at me and says, that's him, that's Niedermeyer, get him. <laughs> and they start throwing food at me and catcalling and, and humiliating me publicly in the midst of this crowded uh, restaurant. And uh, and then they welcomed me, and I sat down. And, but anyway, yeah, and I, I took that as my cue, and I was inclined to do it anyway. I tend to work. Uh, that's a long. That's a long part of it. Uh, I won't go into that. But uh, I tend to work kind of quietly and by myself, and off in a corner anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I work when we're doing this in the theater. I'll I'll tend to work on my own in the corner. I don't go out a lot with people. I don't socialize a lot. I tend to just do the work, study the script, work on the character, work on the characterization, do lines and stuff like that on a play even. But on a movie, certainly. So anyway, um, the, the length and breadth of this story is that uh, Bruce McGill played D-Day, uh, borrowed a piano from the lobby of the roadway and wheeled it across the parking lot, put it in his room. His room became party central, right. and the Deltas and anybody, everybody was invited, uh, partied late into the night uh, down there. I uh, couldn't go to those parties. I, I was invited, but I didn't want to go because I didn't want to be part of that um, that milieu, that energy. I, I, I was the opposition in the script. Right. I was the opposition to that energy. So I asked the hotel to move my room to right above their room, his room. And uh, so I wouldn't be able to get any sleep because the noise would keep me up. So I would spend all night, uh, late into the night, uh, polishing my boots and studying my script and getting angrier and angrier. <laughs> and uh, uh, just made it work. It's a it's a 24-7 job, tends to be. Yeah, and uh, obviously the movie, you know, blew up. Um, we're still talking about it now. Now it's 41 years. Uh, the first time I saw it, yeah. I, was, I was in college, freshman year back in 1993. And immediately... Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I immediately okay. felt, you know, fell in love with it. Uh, and it has... The movie has something for everybody in it. So I mean, I'm sure everybody's favorite scene is different. It's not just like, you know, the one, you know, great, you know, prank or whatever. Um, one of my favorite lines in the movie is when Dean Warmer is talking with, you know, Marmalade and they're trying to get the whole double secret probation and they're like, put little, put Nina Meyer on. He's a sneaky little shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, it's just it's yeah, it's clever. a brilliantly written yeah. movie, and uh, uh, obviously, forty-one years later, as you say, it's it, it's kids when they go to college and go to join a fraternity. Still, it's almost required, uh, and people I I've, I auction on various places I've lived. I auction myself off to go to your house and show the movie for you and a group of 20 friends. I've raised a lot of money for Alzheimer's Association for Montana Natural History Center in Missoula when I lived in Montana. Uh, and I'll go to your house and, and tell stories and tell the same stories I've been right. telling you. And uh, people pay a lot of money just to, to see the movie and uh, dress up in togas and party. Of people of my generation, people of your generation, and they bring their 12-year-old kids to see it for the first time, and they seem to love it. It's There's something universal about it, something uh, endless about it, timeless about it. Uh, it it's really, uh, it's brilliantly written, and, and it was one of those moments, as you said, it blew up. It was, uh, uh, I don't know, there was something very intelligent that went into the making of it and it all has to do with Doug Kenny right. uh, Harold Ramos Chris Miller who wrote the script and John Landis who directed it Sean Daniels who saw it and, and shepherded it through much against the uh, wishes of the higher ups in Universal and uh, uh, a lot of people had a lot to do with making it what it is Right. and what, what was it like working with uh, John Belushi Everybody always asks that question. <laughs> it's the one question you can count on. Right. <laughs> and I always feel like the subtext is, because John was, his his life ended so prematurely and so dramatically uh, at the time uh, from drugs, and I always feel like the subtext is, how fucked up was he? Right. Uh, and he wasn't on this movie. He was, he was, he was, a, he was a brilliant actor, a brilliant physical comedian, a great guy to hang around and very, very focused on doing this work. He was traveling back to New York from Eugene, Oregon every Wednesday night, I guess, uh, to do Saturday, to rehearse Saturday Night Live and do Saturday Night Live. And then he would come back to us on Sunday. So he had to harbor his energy and his strengths very carefully. Uh, Judy Belushi, his wife, was with him and also was in it. Um, I think she plays the woman sitting on the steps with Stephen Bishop, Bishop when he yeah. the guitar part. Yeah, uh, and so he uh, he was very focused, and I think in some unconscious way, he or maybe conscious way, he knew that if he did this movie right, he could do anything he wanted for the rest of his life, which right. turned out to be true, as life just wasn't very long. I'd love right. to see what kind of work he was doing now. When we all get together this past year, when we've gotten together for little mini reunions, right. we joke about doing, people always want to know about, why didn't you do a sequel? And Well, we didn't do a sequel because we didn't, a good script didn't come along, yeah. and John died, and then Doug right. died, yeah. and uh, a lot of people kept dying. And we now talk about doing a sequel and calling it Animal Home, <laughs> so we're all in a, in a nursing home right. uh, with our walkers and uh, oxygen tanks. Yeah, that would be funny, wearing togas and stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 if we do do our own little toga party. Yeah, right. Our bed yeah. Yeah, and you, you mentioned, you know, uh, Doug Kenny, who played Stark in the movie, also died way too young, and, and, you know, brilliant writer as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, wrote Caddyshack. Yeah. Created the National Lampoon. Right. Although Maddie Maddie Simmons, Maddie uh, was there with the money for it, so he he has saw that possibility of it. And Doug had edited the uh, Harvard Lampoon, and when he graduated and found himself with nothing to do, he and uh, uh, Henry Bean uh, came to New York. They just made a, a not a very good movie called uh, uh, Futile and Stupid Gesture based on a biography of Doug uh, for Netflix. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, Doug, and then he went on to write Caddyshack and then died in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, it was way too soon. Yeah, but um, did you yeah. think Kevin Bacon would be you know the breakout star that he's become? No, uh, no, no, not necessarily. But again, I, as I said earlier, I, I I didn't think that way. I wasn't right. thinking that way. Yeah. I was thinking of the work. Right. And Kevin was good. He was uh, a good-looking kid. I. I spent a little time with him in Eugene and, and spent more time with him before the movie came out back in New York and uh, and after came out a little bit in New York before he was the Kevin Bacon that's now six degrees of separation from everybody on the planet. Right. And, uh, but, yeah, the other question people ask is, did you know that it was going to be such a big hit? No. no. Nobody knew. Nobody thought that way in those days. Nobody thought, oh, I'll do this movie because it'll be a big hit and then I'll be able to, I mean, as I said about John, he may have thought I can do anything for me. John Belushi and John Vernon, according to John Landis, were the only two people who came to him and said, this movie is going to be huge. Right. The rest of us were just, you know, journeyman actors. I've been called a journeyman actor all my life. I'm proud to be a journeyman actor. It's a craft to me. It's a job. And it's a damn good job. I really like it. And, uh, but it isn't about, it was, it's never been about to me. And it sounds disingenuous, I suppose. It may be disingenuous, I don't know. But it's never been about, for me, uh, how much money it'll make, how, you know, if it's a, it's a treat that 40 years later people are talking about it. I wish that 40 years later people were talking about uh, the Romeo and Juliet I did with Kate Burton in Riverside Park in 19. I don't know when that was, uh, or the uh, Long Day's Journey into Night that I did in, at the Arena Stage in 1976 uh, with uh, Jimmy Broderick, Matthew Broderick's father, and Leora Dana, and Stanley Anderson, and Halo Wines. Extraordinarily great play and a really good production. And, but, you know, and people sometimes do. I mean, I've had right. people uh, come up and talk to me and say, the stream, I saw streamers when you did it in New York, and it was the greatest experience I've ever had in the theater. Wow. Uh, and that's, you know, it's it's nice when people, when, it, when you lodge it in someone's unconsciousness strongly enough that they're still able to remember it and talk about it 40, 50 years later. Right. And that's really, it's very rewarding. So I'm, I'm appreciative of it, but that's not why you do the work. Right, right. The, uh, the first thing I, I saw you in wasn't Animal House, it wasn't even the Twisted Sister videos again to that, was in The Heavenly Kid. Oh, with Jane Kaczmarek. Yeah, yeah, playing, you know, yeah. playing her husband. Um, and Lewis Smith. Yeah, Lewis Smith, Jason Gedrick, you know, it, it, it was a fun movie, it's kind of like Under the Radar, you know, people really kind of don't talk about it anymore. Um, any memorable yeah. stories from filming that movie? Oh, uh, some woman in a bar taught me how to drink Russian 
Quaaludes. <laughs> I actually remember after six or seven of them, which is amazing. Right. Uh, I remember working with Jane Kazmarek. She was wonderful to work with. Uh, oh, Jason Gedrick, who still works and still is around. Yeah. He was, I think, 17 or 18 and during that. And he came to me. He played my son, or my adopted son. Right. My son. I guess he's raised as my son yeah. in the movie. He came to me really brokenhearted because there were all these all these people that talk about career. People already had, they were, he, I think he was 17 or 18. And uh, he was really sad because he wasn't a star yet. Mm. And he, and they were the, all these other, you know, the, the Brat Pack, all these people yeah. who were young and they were already stars and he was brokenhearted. And I said a famous line from Animal House, uh, my advice is to drink heavily. <laughs> and uh, I took him out because I thought it was such a ludicrous thought for this nice young kid, good looking kid, yeah. and a relatively talented kid. To, uh, uh, to it was such an idiotic thought for him to have. I took him out and uh, taught him how to drink bourbon, I think, or scotch, right. and got him really drunk. And so drunk he was uh, hungover and uh, had trouble making the set the next day. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, that was my revenge for him having this idiotic thought of, uh, I'm not a, I'm 17, I'm not a star yet. Right. Um, anyway. Yeah, but I mean, you know, his next role, I think, was Iron Eagle. So, you know, it, it worked out. So he landed that role. Yeah. Well, he, he had the bone structure for it and the uh, and the desire. And he, and he, he, was, yeah, he was good. He's, yeah. I've seen him do some of his work, and he's done some work. And, yeah, Iron Eagle uh, with uh, Lou Gossett. Is that yeah. the movie with Lou Gossett? Yeah, yeah. 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 So you were able yeah. to play, you know, Nina Meyer again in... Uh, Twister Sister videos, which you know are legendary, they're they're great. Um, played on MTV when MTV was watchable. Um, how, how did uh, he find you? I don't know. I still don't know how he <laughs> found me to this day. He called me at home uh, in the east of my apartment, on my fifth floor walk up in the East Village. I didn't even. I had a black and white TV that I barely ever watched. Right. I didn't know what MTV was. Certainly didn't know what. Uh, the band Twisted Sister was. I was doing a play in New York. Um, they asked me, he said, we're doing this rock video. I didn't know what a rock video was. <laughs> he says, a three or four minute film of a, and I said, do you pay American money? And said, yeah, we pay American money. We don't have much. And I said, well, you can just give me a, a sag scale and fly me to Hollywood and uh, fly me back because I'm doing a play. I can leave Sunday night. I've got some stuff in Hollywood I need to pick up from an old girlfriend. Uh, fly me back so I can be back here on Wednesday. I, if you don't, you know, I'll, I'll walk. If I'm, I guess I've got to be back here to do the play on Wednesday. They guaranteed me that, and uh, and I flew out there and did it for you know three hundred bucks and hmm. uh, and picked up my stuff. Slept on Marty Collner's couch. He was the guy who directed it, and uh, and and, uh, and and then the rest is history. Every five minutes, it played on MTV and and ended up, I did another one, uh, that one was, I can't remember what that one's called, that one I'm yelling at my son. Yeah, I Want to Rock. Called, uh, I Want to Rock, yeah, that's how it starts, I Want to Rock, but is that the song? Yeah, that's the I song the too. Song is, we're, no, the song is We're Not Gonna Take It. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the first song, one, yeah. The next one, when I'm yelling at my student, in uh, high school student, uh, that's uh, I wanna, We Want to Rock, Yeah, or something. Anyway, I did those two, and uh, and one of them, the first one, 
Trevor Gore played uh, in on the floor of the Senate right. in its entirety when D went down and and talked in front of the Senate, and Frank Zappa went down and talked in front of the Senate when she was doing her hearings on sex and violence and rock and roll. I'm sure that didn't have anything to do with the sex and rock and roll. It must have had to do with the violence right. being blown through a window. Yeah. <laughs> but it was the only work my father was ever proud of because it was in the Senate record book. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, now your, your, your work is obviously with Animal House and the videos, I mean, just everyone's seen it. Everyone like knows you from something different. Uh, my favorite TV show is Seinfeld. You played Bob Cobb, aka the Maestro. Um, Don't say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, um, I, I had a couple guest stars from Seinfeld on in previous episodes, and they all have a great Larry David story. And you run into Larry. Yeah, my, my my strongest memory of Larry is they, they did a rap party at, at the end of that season. It was such, it was a, such a big hit that they uh, they seemed to do rap parties for the season there, right. which was great. And uh, they did a great rap party out at uh, at the at the, it's not the Air and Space Museum, but there's a on Santa Monica Airport, that little airport out there in Santa Monica, where that Harrison Ford flies in and out of, or used to. Uh, a lot of private jets fly in and out, and they, there's a museum there, and they did a rap party there for the whole cast and crew and everybody from the whole season. And I spent maybe 20, half, half an hour, 20 minutes talking to Larry or over a drink around the table there, and he was talking mostly about how he thought this was going to be his last season. Right. Because he wasn't, he, he had enjoyed it, it was a great ride, but he was, you know, he started out as a Former and a writer, and he wasn't real happy standing behind Jerry all the time. Jerry was the one everybody wanted to talk to. Right. Not too many people knew who Larry David was, unless they were the people who read the credits at the end, and uh, or really were you know big good big fans. And uh, he sort of wanted to, and then so he went off years later and created Curb Your Enthusiasm. Now he's uh, as equally as big a name as. As Jerry, but uh, well, perhaps not. Jerry's sort of the godfather of comedy now. Right. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's he, he was. He, other than that, he was. I auditioned for him. Yeah. And uh, met him, but he was. Uh, I never. I did a movie with Robert Mitchum once, called Mr. North. Right. Up right. In, uh, Newport, and we didn't have very much money. Danny Houston directed it. John Houston's uh, son directed Angelic was in it. It's a good cast. It was sort of John's gift to his son to direct this movie. And, and John was supposed to be in it, but he got very sick with he had emphysema and a lot right. of other stuff wrong. He was very sick and Bob came and Mitchum came and did it. And uh, we didn't have any money enough for Honey Wagon. So we would all sit in the Harrison Stanton, David Warner, Mitchum and I would sit in one corner that he would call uh, Lauren Bacall would sit in another corner with uh, some of the other women. And, and Bacall came to uh, Mitchum once as we broke for lunch and said, come on, Bob, we're going to have lunch with the producers. And uh, Mitchum looked up at her and said, I don't eat with producers. <laughs> and he went and he ate with us. Right. He ate with the actors. He ate with the schlubs. <laughs> and uh, a very democratic guy. Uh and I've always, I've never, consequently, not consequently, but just because, as I said, my concentration tends to be on the work. Right. So I don't 
tend to focus on the producers too much. And the producers in television are, are important because they they manage more of the script. Right. But I tend to focus on the actors and the people that I'm going to be working across the ether with, the air, through the air with. And uh, so I, I didn't pay too much attention to Larry until the end of the, because he was a producer. Right. He was a writer. Yeah. And what's the old blonde joke about the blonde who went to Hollywood and slept with the writer? He's dead scene. He don't, you don't sleep your way to the top by sleeping with the writer. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the cast was was legendary. Uh, you know, and you were like one of like the few rare like Julia's boyfriends to make multiple episodes as well. Yes, I, I have no idea whether they had me written in for a second episode or not when they originally wrote the character or whether they just liked what happened and, and wrote it again. I have no idea. But yeah, I did two episodes. I came back uh, as uh, her boyfriend. And they, they, they wrap, they, when they wrapped the whole show, yeah. they called me and said, we, we tried to figure out a way to get you into this. One of the writers called me and said, we tried to get figure out a way to get you into the final episode, right. the, the big hour-long episode, because it was such a good character, but all the characters that we, the whole format of it, is what they said, the whole format of it was people that they had, the, the three of them, or the four of them, mm. had really dumped on right. all season, all year, of her, throughout the seven or nine years, however long they were on yeah, the nine, show, yeah. nine, uh, and you got over on them every time, so we couldn't bring you back. So I felt, so that was okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. I mean, the only thing, you know, that you had the broken uh, stick during your performance, right, when you guys were playing uh, pool in George's room. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But like, one of my funniest, like, memories of, like, your performance, and it's, like, such a, like, you know, under-the-radar thing is when Julia presents you the poster of the three tenors, and the way you're opening it, taking the rubber band off, just cracks me up every time. <laughs> Oh, the, the rubber bands? Yeah. Yeah, yeah but it was completely one of those uh, happy accidents. I mean, the great, the great moment, the moments you remember in the theater are the moments when you're scared out of your wits because things don't go the way they're supposed to go. And, and uh, the rubber band, that was the only way I could get it off. Right. There was no, so in character as a conductor, I, I just made a bit of it. it. It happened on, I think as I remember right, it happened on camera. And uh, I just did it. It was not a planned thing or an idea that somebody had. It was yeah. just something that happened. Yeah, yeah it, it cracks me up every time. But also you played, yeah, but, um, but, in, in your career, you know, a couple, you know, non-humans and Buffy and Star Trek Voyager. I'm sure the makeup was intensive in both. Uh, which one was worse? to go through well uh, worse is a relative term <laughs> um, the makeup for Star Trek Voyager wasn't really makeup it was a costume it was uh, they, they had these suits built for the Herosians this race of people uh, they were all supposed to be seven feet tall and they ran out of seven foot tall actors fairly mm -hmm. early and they mm -hmm. cast me and uh, an episode later in the season, they last, They went through the whole season, I think. I don't know how long they went on. But they didn't want to spend the money to build new outfits for the new actors because it's a lot of foam and they're expensive. So I wore the body armor 
I mean, which is supposed to be my body, it's, it's makeup, it's foam, that had been worn by one or two seven-foot-tall actors, and they didn't want to cut it up because they might find another seven-foot-tall actor, so they just folded it over in the middle, and, uh, and then I, they, the face makeup is, all, uh, is a mask. It's a one piece that fits right over your head, and it's gathered together in the back, and pinned or glued or stapled together back there, and once you get it on, you don't get it off. There's an opening so that you can go to the bathroom. But I think I lost two weeks wearing that stuff for two episodes. I think I lost 15 pounds because that's wow. And if I was perspiring in it, you can imagine that this seven-foot-tall actors that wore it before me also perspired in it. So it didn't smell very good. And uh, so it was It was a horrible experience wearing that makeup. Right. On the other hand, the Buffy the Vampire makeup uh, took five hours to put on at the beginning of the season. Okay. By the end of the season, they had it down to three and a half hours. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it took five hours. But it was really thin foam that that every that was glued to my face, that, every, that showed up every facial expression that that i made every emotion not every emotion but you know if you do a little a little bit of clown acting a little bit of overacting and i overact all the time anyway <laughs> uh it it's that foam will pick it up and transfer it to the surface and then the camera will see it and uh it was five pieces a face piece the skull cap that each ear and a neck piece um and then they would get it on me excuse me, and then they would paint it when it was on me to make sure that the colors were just right. And if you watch the season, if you uh, binge watch the season, you'll see that the uh, it's, it, it evolves as the season goes on. I don't have the, what she calls, refers to as my punch bowl mouth right. at the beginning of the season. That kind of evolved as we painted. But five hours to put it on every morning for the first, you know, four, five, six episodes, and an hour and a half to get it off. So it was very time-consuming, whereas the Star Trek Voyager makeup went on in half an hour. And, uh, and it, you know, to a certain extent, it damaged my skin, the, the, the glue, the adhesive mm-hmm. that they use, uh, uh, corrupted my skin in some way. Mm-hmm. I had some little bumps around my chin line that mm-hmm. I didn't have before that. But it was it was a great experience having it on because it was it's wonderful to act behind a mask. Mm. It's really liberating in a lot of ways, and uh, and it was a great character. And it was uh, Joss Whedon, who's a genius, right. a bit of yeah. a genius, and uh, so it was brilliantly conceived. And and uh, the directors on that show, from Joss to David Greenwald to all of them that I worked with. Uh, were really good. The again, the producer, as Joss as a producer, was uh, uh, was great. The scripts were great. The cast was great. Sarah Michelle was good. Mm-hmm. I attended. I worked with her once at the end. Mostly, I worked with uh, with my minions alone <laughs> in the basement, right? In the church, sunk underground, and uh, it was a great working experience. I really enjoyed it. it. If the if the script is good and the people are good that you're working with. And, and I did the first season, yeah. and nobody knew it was a hit yet. Right. And uh, so everybody was working hard to make it really good. Nobody was being, uh, nobody had to leave the set to go do an interview for Vogue magazine. And mm-hmm. when I came back, and did, 
I think I did an episode in the third season, and I also did Angel. Yeah. And that they, when it was deep in, uh, the, the mentality on the set, again, because of the celebrity status of the stars and the, and the marketing and merchandising that goes on in Hollywood, uh, when I came back and did those episodes, they were, they were, the, the energy on the set was very different. It wasn't as focused on the work. The first season of Buffy was great because nobody. When when I got cast, and I read and, and I, I went to Josh, I said, "So this character I'm doing." They, I think they told me I'd do ten episodes of twelve in the whole season, something like that. And uh, I said to Josh, "So what's the arc of this character? How where does he go so that I have something to work with? I know where I'm going. What happens to the master?" And he said, oh, it's really great because the last episode, you kill Buffy. And I said, oh, great. Does yeah. that mean if it gets picked up, it'll the second season will be called Master the Buffy Slayer? <laughs> and he laughed. And I, he didn't tell me that I killed Buffy and then she killed me. Right. Or she came back to life, was risen from the dead and came back and killed me and I turned to dust. He didn't tell me that. But I I worked the season thinking, great, I'll be the, uh, I'll be the mayor of Sunnydale. <laughs> and... Uh, and they did bring me back as the mayor of Sunnydale, uh, or I call—I don't know if he was the mayor or not—but in that that episode called "The Wish" in some season or other, the third season, uh, where I don't know who it is, somebody makes a wish that uh, Buffy had never come to Sunnydale, and lo and behold, she gets her wish, and the master reigns supreme and has my little factory to to bring he bring me a human. I put him on a conveyor belt, and they pump blood out of him very funny episode right. and Allison Hannigan in tight leather pants sitting on my lap that's what I remember it was great <laughs> right. do you I know they made like a ton of merchandise for that show do you have the master action figure no I do not I don't have anything from that right. I, do, I do conventions sometimes uh, for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and sign autographs and do Q&A's for people about Buffy because it's such a big cult hit right. so many people are big fans and they'll bring me uh, the action figure, and I'll sign it. And they, uh, uh, yeah, but I don't have. Uh, there are literally no. Looking around my apartment right now, mm. there are no artifacts of anything that I've ever done in the movies or television in my house, except for a picture of myself holding my son in my costume from the stupids. My son was okay. 11 months old, months right. old when John Landis called me and asked me to come do the stupids in Toronto. Yeah. And my uh, his mother brought him up there to visit me once, and there's a picture of me in costume with my son in my arms from the stupids. It's the only artifact of anything I've ever done in my apartment. Right. I don't know what that says about me. It's something right. about myself. <laughs> Well, you said it's you know about the work, and you, you get involved, and you move on to the next role. So, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. When it's when that's done, it's done, and, and what's the next job? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're yeah. only as good as your last performance. They taught me in the theater early on. Right. So yeah, you're so. You're, you're walking down the street, and you get recognized. What do people say to you? What do they remember? Like which character? Well, usually it depends on the town. Right. On a campus like this, Ohio State, it's usually Animal House. Right. In uh, when I lived in Milwaukee, which is a little bit 
excuse me, a slightly more cosmopolitan town, not such a, uh, a university town. Uh, it was Seinfeld mostly. Okay. Um, I mean, they recognize for Animal House too, but it depends on the town. In Milwaukee and in, in Missoula, Montana, when I lived there, it was uh, nothing. <laughs> they don't watch. They don't watch TV and movies in Missoula. Right. They've got the Rocky Mountains right out their window. They right. know what do they need with all this uh, these screens. It's the uh, healthiest town I've ever lived in. Right. That's great. But Mark, this was great. Thank you for your time today, and best Good. of Thank luck you. with with everything and all your college courses. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I hope you uh, hope you had a good time. I did certainly. And a special thanks to Mark for joining us today. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at theversenall19. Be sure to like the page for Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. The show is on SoundCloud. It's on Podbean. It's also on Spotify. Just search for Living My Youth, all one word. Go to tpublic.com for all your merchandise, t-shirts, sweatshirts, onesies, phone cases, stickers. And coming up next week on Reliving My Youth. No, that's a really good question. And, and it's kind of like stupid that after all, after 35,000 interviews, right. I don't have an answer for that. Find out the question that stumped dentistry from 10,000 Maniacs on next week's episode of Reliving My Youth. We'll see you then. <laughs>